Thanks, guys. You might like to keep your Bibles open whilst I adjust my vertical challenge. Oops, not that short, am I? <laughs> um, if you didn't get a Bible, grab them from over um, on the table outside, um, which is out there, and remember to put them on the used Bibles table. Uh, for those people who are super keen for all of those things to stop, I think it might stop just after Jesus has returned. So get used to them. When you decided to follow Jesus... Did you expect Jesus to turn your life upside down? Or did you expect uh, the things that Jesus says to challenge your religious assumptions and your religious practices? Uh, for some of us, we might feel that our decision to follow Jesus meant that we just were going to keep walking in the way we'd always walked as we grew up. Our parents were church people and we are following Jesus like they did. So you might feel that there was no major challenges to you deciding to follow changes to you find deciding to follow Jesus. But I want to ask us a question. Are we following the comfortable religion that we grew up with or are we following Jesus? It's a good question for us to ask ourselves, isn't it? Because today in Luke's passage we are introduced to people specifically on the topic of their religious practices and these people thought they knew everything about following God. But Jesus shows them what following God is really about. And these people are faced with a monumental decision. Do I change what I'm doing or do I get rid of Jesus? Do I change what I'm doing? Or do I get rid of Jesus? Now, if you found out that you've been involved in religious practices that were different to what Jesus said or contrary to what Jesus said, what would you choose to do? Would you choose to change? Have you made a change? Or would you choose not to change and to continue doing what you'd always done? How about I pray for us? look at God's word this morning. Our loving Heavenly Father, thank you. Uh, thank you that you, uh, your word uh, speaks to our heart and wants us to live in response to what you've said. Uh, we've grown up in a religious culture and we may have even grown up in religious families and religious denominations, all with our own habits and practices. We pray, Lord God, that you give us the courage to assess whether what we're doing is what you say or just what we're comfortable with and familiar to. And we ask this, Lord, in your precious name. Amen. Well, last week we saw that the Pharisees and their best lawyers were gathering to listen to Jesus and they weren't gathering to listen to Jesus because they really wanted to know what he said and they wanted their hearts to be changed by what he said. They wanted to know what he said because they wanted to charge him. Jesus is dodgy, don't listen to Jesus. And in their mind, it would only be a matter of time before Jesus put his foot in his mouth or was exposed as being a false leader, a false teacher. Because Jesus often did things that they thought that really pious people, God followers, should do. So I said he often did, I'd say he didn't often do 
That's what I should have said. Jesus often didn't do the things that they thought really pious people should do. So, chapter 5, verse 33, where we left off last week, they ask a question because they want to draw out one of the things that they think Jesus has got wrong and expose Jesus as a fraud. Good and godly followers, of course, of Yahweh will always fast, won't they? John the Baptist, his disciples fast. Pharisees' disciples fast. Jesus, why don't your blokes fast? In fact, why do they not only not fast, but why do they eat and drink? The exact opposite. Now, if you're a Jew of Jesus' day, then the Pharisees had made sure that everyone knew that fasting was a part of your pious rituals that you must do. In fact, Monday and Thursday, fasting days, twice a week, because that's what really good, godly followers of Yahweh did. They were the example. But the problem was that that was not what the Bible said. In fact, the Pharisees' rules were quite different from what the Bible said. The Old Testament, have a look in it. What does it say about fasting? It says very little about fasting. And the religious leaders had added lots of their own rules. The Bible does talk, Old Testament does talk about fasting, but they'd written all these extra rules that ensured you really had to do it at those exact times if you were really fair income about following Yahweh. In the Old Testament, fasting is primarily done in response to sorrow. In fact, in the book of law, books of law, so the first five books, are really only the main time it's talked about is in Leviticus in relationship to your sorrow to sin. The Day of Atonement, fasting is prescribed. But it's also mentioned at other times in the Old Testament when God's people are repentant, sorry for, sorry, sorry for what they have done or the context that they find themselves in and praying for deliverance. Now, in asking Jesus this question, they wanted to expose Jesus as a fraud, but what Jesus does is turn their understanding of fasting upside down and challenge them to ask the question, who is Jesus? Jesus says, it's not a time for mourning, it's a time for celebration, like a wedding. The bride and the groom don't fast at a wedding. In fact, the Jewish law that these blokes were often good at knowing and quoting said that wedding guests, brides and grooms and wedding guests don't fast on the wedding day. In fact, they were free from any religious law that stopped them being, that would lessen their joy is the wording it uses. And weddings are a time of great celebration, aren't they? Not a time of mourning. And mourning, as in not the AMPM mourning, but the sorrow crying morning is what fasting is all focused on and so in Jesus's reply he alludes to the fact that a time is coming when morning will, will be appropriate when the groom is not there and the celebration is no longer needed it would be a time of mourning but notice the response of the Pharisees they had wanted to expose Jesus and they want to, we'll see, get rid of Jesus. And they never paused and said, why is Jesus saying that now is a time of celebration? 
Jesus actually goes on in Luke's gospel to, or Luke puts this con- this story, this event in Jesus' life, with two parables that Jesus speaks of. Not necessarily consecutively spoken, um, uh, they, sorry, these, these parables are consecutively spoken, but not necessarily the only time that they are spoken. Two parables that explain why what Jesus says is going to be completely incompatible with what the Pharisees are saying. Completely incompatible with what they expect a good godly religious people, followers of Yahweh to do. And the parables have to do with sowing and winemaking. Uh, you don't sow new patches onto old clothes. In fact, if you're a bloke, you don't sow at all. No, it doesn't say that, does it? And you don't put new wine in your old wineskins. Now, really important that we do pick up on the fact that Jesus is not saying anything about sowing or mending or winemaking. That's not the purpose of what he's... He's not trying to instruct us to be good people who sow and people who make wine. But he's using two really well-known events in people's lives to explain why what he says is completely incompatible with what the Pharisees are saying. Here's the first reason the why Jesus thinks, the things that he says, will not be compatible. Judaism of Jesus' day is so completely distorted that you just cannot mix the two. You can't reform Judaism and end up with what Jesus says. Pharisees are graceless, legalistic, hypocritical, moralistic people who have misused the Old Testament so completely that you cannot reform them. They are unwilling to learn truth, and we have seen that already, and they are unwilling to change. Their minds are made up. They are content with their old way of doing things and they make no effort to hear what Jesus says. Jesus so far in Luke's gospel has engaged them. Later on in Luke's gospel, he will condemn them. All they ever want to do is criticise him. They complain to him that he makes them look bad. And Jesus reserves his harshest words of condemnation for them. Jesus is saying here, you cannot mix the Pharisaic teaching with what he is teaching. There's another reason why you cannot mix what Jesus is teaching with what the good, godly, religious followers of Yahweh expect him to be saying. You see, there is a pivot point happening in salvation history. God is moving things from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. And we saw that a few weeks ago when we looked at the next passage, chapter 6, verses 12 uh, to 16. The movement from the 12 tribes of Israel as leadership of God's people to the 12 apostles as leaders of God's people. You see, the Old Covenant is ending. Remember, Luke is the author of Luke-Acts and things are moving. The pivot point of that movement is the death and resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus is preparing people to know that what he is on about 
is not going to mix with the Old Testament right understanding of God's word. You see, you can understand the Old Covenant rightly and Jesus' actions and words will actually be different from what you expect if you are looking at the Old Testament only. And Luke goes us to give us two examples of that difference. It's not just that the Pharisees were distorting false teachers, but there is a pivot point happening between Old Covenant and New Covenant. Have a look with me at chapter 6, verses 1 to 5. On one Sabbath, Jesus is there with, uh, the Pharisees are there with their lawyers on hand, and they notice that Jesus' disciples are plucking grain and eating it. Now, it is okay to walk through people's crops eating the grain. That's not stealing. That was allowed. But the Pharisees had their scoop because it wasn't allowed on the Sabbath, according to them. And the Sabbath law stops you harvesting and the Sabbath law is given by God and for God. So Jesus is breaking Old Testament law at its highest level, or his disciples are. They're harvesting grain. But what they seem to have forgotten is this. They had distorted God's Old Testament law. God's word said that you could not harvest. But plucking grain is not harvesting. If you're hungry and plucking grain to eat, that is perfectly legitimate. The Old Testament law, Sabbath law, was never against excluding people from basic eating. And Jesus exposes their wrong understanding by telling them of the story that we read from 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 to 6. But Jesus says, have you ever read it? Of course they had. They knew the Old Testament like the back of their hand, but they'd never understood it. The law required, if you're a good, godly follower of Yahweh, that the bread that was placed on the altar in the temple would be actually consumed by the priest after the six days it had stayed there. Some lucky priests, eh? But David turned up. His men are starving. They were ritually clean. And it could be used to feed them. Now, what Jesus is saying here, that the purpose of the law in the Old, Co- Old, no, the Old Covenant, Old Testament, was never to be excluding people in that way. What Jesus is saying is that the graceless, legalistic, distorted teachings of the Pharisees are inconsistent with that Sabbath law. Compassionate ground allowed the priest to give David... The temple, the bread. They were ceremonially clean. They were able to eat it, even though the law said it was only priests who did it. Now, the Sabbath is a t- touchy point, isn't it, amongst God's people? In fact, the Sabbath was Sabbath law was a really touchy point amongst the Pharisees in their engagement with Jesus. And the early church wrestled with the huge changes that are happening in the Sabbath law between Old Covenant and New Covenant. One of the things we see under the New Covenant is that the Sabbath is actually not no longer tied to the Sabbath day, the Saturday. Now, this is a big discussion, the Sabbath, the idea of rest before God. 
That's a big theme in the scriptures. We're not going to unpack it all today, but what we clearly see that there's a change between old covenant and new covenant that God's people meet on the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And Jesus makes it clear that he is the Lord of Sabbath. The Sabbath, the law that law, the law that was given by God for God's glory, he is the one that shows you what it really how to put it into practice, if I could put it that way. What it really means. He does it by taking us back to scripture, by the way. He removes the purpose of the law from the legalism of the Pharisees. It's pretty staggering what Jesus says, isn't it? That I am the Lord of the Sabbath. That's an incredible claim of authority, isn't it? We're going to come back to uh, this particular topic as we ask how does it impact us today. But let's keep working through the passage because what I think we see is that Luke gives us a couple of reasons why Um, more reasons why Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath and what that means in reality. The Pharisees were expecting that good and godly followers of Yahweh fast and they were also expecting that good and godly followers of Yahweh would not heal people on the Sabbath. Chapter 6, verses 6 to 11. Another Sabbath, Pharisees there spying on Jesus wanting to catch him out, to charge him. Jesus will break the Sabbath law, will he or won't he? A man is there with a shriveled hand. Now, this is not an emergency. This has been a long-term problem, my gut feeling is. The man's life is not in danger. He could have waited till the Sunday, the non-Sabbath day, to heal him. But will Jesus wait another day or will Jesus embrace compassion? Now, what we see in Jesus, he takes them head on. Don't ever get the idea that Jesus avoided controversy. He embraced a fight. And as we get to through the gospel, we'll see that he actually pours fuel on fire and lights it. Make sure it make, He makes sure it's burning well. That there is a purpose behind what he's doing here. It's not fight for fight's sake. Jesus asked the man with a shriveled hand to stand up in front of those people that are waiting to condemn him and he asked the religious people of the day a question. Notice there's silence. There's no answer. He looks at them and waits for an answer. And here's the question. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? What, what is the purpose of the Sabbath? That's the question that's behind it, isn't it? What's the right thing to do on the Sabbath day? And look what Jesus does. Remember what he said in verse 5? He's the Lord of the Sabbath. Look what he does. He heals the man. Who has the right to decide what happens on the Sabbath day? The Lord of the Sabbath does. Now, he doesn't reject the idea of the Sabbath. He doesn't say, well, that doesn't matter anymore. He just shows them what is it there for. What is the purpose of the Sabbath day, the the day set aside for rest? That's what he's doing. And he says the heart of God, the heart of Jesus, is to show compassion. And we read that the Pharisees and their lawyers are furious. It actually says they are filled with fury. You can hear them bubbling. And in their fury, they go and break pretty much every other Old Testament law the very thing that they were trying to catch Jesus out on. 
What does it mean for? How do, how do we respond to this? Is it just a lovely story? Do we walk away from this thinking, oh, we don't even meet on the Sabbath. Or maybe we should get back to that. Well, how do we do with the, what do we do with the passage? Well, what would you do if God's word exposed that one of your religious practices, the things that you thought were essential for every follower of Yahweh to do, are not done by other Christians, or actually even worse, God's word says you shouldn't be doing them. The things that they've practiced, you've practiced in your denomination, in your family of origin, if you've grown up in a God, God-fearing family, or family of origin. Now, I've come across an enormous number of family practices and church denominational practices that people think that that's what good, godly followers of Yahweh should always do, but they, they find out that most of them don't. Some of them are not even in the Bible. And some of them, God's word says you should not do. I'm not going to tell you what they were, because you might think I'm targeting yours, because I don't know what yours are. But I wonder whether you've got the courage to ask yourself, are the practices that I think are good and godly really what the Bible says? And if you are so indoctrinated with your worldview, you're not sure, ask someone who's outside your worldview who doesn't do them. Where does God's word say that that's a good idea? That's a challenging thing to do, isn't it? Very challenging. And who do you follow? Do you follow what you've always done? Do you follow what your pastor says? Do you follow what the word of God says? Hopefully the answer is obvious. There are some things in the old covenant that really don't matter whether you do them or not in the new covenant. Now, circumcision, not ungodly to get circumcised, but it's no longer a sign of godliness. Food laws, they were signs of godliness, weren't they, in the old covenant? But in the new covenant, well, it doesn't really matter what you eat. They're no longer signs of godliness or ungodliness. The day you gather, Sabbath day, Saturday or Sunday. Or what, what about Wednesday if I'm busy? In fact, Romans 14 verses 5, 6, 7 and 8 says, actually all days are holy. I wonder whether we're prepared to ask ourselves that question. The religious practice that we do are not found in the Bible. Is the Bible actually against them? Or is the Bible indifferent towards them? As long as you don't make them essential for godliness. You see, circumcision is instantly bad when you say circumcision is essential for true godliness. You know, when I grew up, there were strict laws about church and Sundays. I don't know what you grew up with. I know what you practice. Couldn't go to couldn't go to my friends' places on Sundays, no matter whether the best best party in the world or the worst party in the world. Couldn't play sport on Sundays. Non-negotiable. Now, there's actually nothing in the Bible that says you shouldn't go to your friends' place on a Sunday. 
There's actually nothing in the Bible that says you shouldn't play sport on a Sunday. Now, there is something in the Bible that says we should gather together as God's people on a do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. We've got clear guidance on that. You might have family laws. But don't try and dress your family laws up as God's law. Who decides? Now you might be thinking now, there's instantly a can of worms being opened up. Because there might be things that you really hold strongly to that you think are absolutely essential for godliness. That I've just picked on like playing sport on Sundays. Who decides what godliness looks like for you? Is it something you determine as you feel comfortable? That could be dangerous, couldn't it? Because we see what happens in our own denomination when they turn around and say, let us determine what godliness looks like. And we have open ungodliness at almost every level. And here's a simple answer to who determines what godliness looks like. Let's look at what God's word says on the subject. We're citizens of the kingdom. Let's look at what the king says. And let's make sure we look at all of what the Bible says and understand what God's word says, old covenant, new covenant, how the difference Jesus makes to that. And we see as we do something like that as a... On the Sabbath, we see that the Saturday is absolutely central in the Old Covenant and it doesn't matter what day, all days are holy under New Covenant. See, God's word helps us determine what godliness is looking like, not our own free will determines what godliness looks like. Of course, you might think, let's throw everything out and start with nothing. What I am not saying is this. Helpful family practices are still helpful. But they might not be God-endorsed. This is what godliness looks like. But what do you do when things are incompatible? What are you going to do when things, when your religious rules and your family rules and your denominational rules are incompatible with what God's word says? That's where the challenge is, isn't it? You're not going to be able to put new wine in old wineskins. Will you be repentant? Will you actually say, actually I thought that's what it said but now I realise it's not. Let's rethink what it means to be godly. Let's look at what God's word says. Or maybe you could be, well maybe not filled with fury but just stubborn enough to say, well I don't care, it's my way or the highway. So that's the challenge, isn't it? It's a challenge for me, it's a challenge for you. Your religious practices and habits, what are they? Now, are you going to settle for religious familiarity? This is what our family's always done, what our denomination's always done, what our culture's always done, even when what you've done is against God's word. I want to say add one last thing on fasting. Um... There's a lot to cover, so don't feel that this is all there is to say on fasting. What are your thoughts on fasting? And I'm not talking about dieting. That's got nothing to do with it. Okay. Well, actually, remember, it's worthwhile looking at what God's Word says on it. What does the Bible say, Old Testament and New Testament, in light of who Jesus is, the fact that the, the bridegroom has come? Actually, 
look at what God's word says, you'll see there's little on it, but that does not mean it's not, nothing's said on it. And it doesn't mean that it's banned, and it doesn't mean that it's wrong. Let me tell you how fasting could be wrong, though. If you think that fasting earns you brownie points with God and makes you a better Christian, then my suggestion is you've probably misunderstood fasting. Gee, our motives can be tricky, can't we? But if you think fasting helps you long more for the return of Jesus or mourn the brokenness of your world or this world, if you think fasting helps you focus on God, there'll be nothing wrong with it, is there? There's a lot to think about. Just throw a few curveballs out there for us to think about. We've got plenty of time to yarn over morning tea. Why don't I pray? Our loving Heavenly Father, uh, we keep thanking you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the goodness of the gospel, the challenge that your word brings, and help us to have the courage to think through what we think good, godly followers of Yahweh do, and help us to ask, is that what you think? Is that what your word says? Lord, on matters of indifference, help us to remember that it is indifferent what we do. But when we do things that are contrary to your word, give us the courage to change. And we ask this, Lord, in your precious name. Amen.